0: are let you be the center of this time together and may you be given the glory through it we ask this in your name amen you may be seated so who would have thought that you'd be showing up to church on sunday morning you'd be learning about tumors and mice <laughs> But that's that's just the way that god's work word works it's Strange at times and yet there is a purpose, there is a meaning behind it, there is a, there is a reason for it. Uh, last week, well the last couple of weeks we've looked at through First Samuel and First Samuel chapter 5, 4 and 5 is about God's glory. So chapter 4 is about God's glory, chapter 5 is about His sovereign power and His authority over all things. For God to be sovereign means that He causes or allows all things to happen from the little amoeba that dies to the greatest explosion in all of the universe. He has power and authority over all of that. And what's in between is you and me. So he has power over you. He has power over me. He has power over the Philistines and the Israelites. He has power over the false gods and those who worship those false gods. Now last week we talked about these false gods of this age, of today, and money, job, time, family, friends, leisure, all of those things that we worship, that we, we give our time to, and we look forward to worshiping them. But there was one, as I began to look back this past week and studying this passage, I saw that I actually missed an idol that we tend to worship at times. And that false God is God himself. Now hear me out. That we make a false god of God. That many worship a god of entertainment or of prosperity, a god of emotion, a god of love. This god brings good feelings and gives goosebumps. This god blesses simply because I'm me and I'm here. Isn't he happy that I'm here to worship him? This God is spoken of as one who would be spoken uh, speak to a wife or to a husband or to a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Um, when when Aaron and I sit down and we talk, we kind of we discuss, but we kind of joke too about those songs that we sing. I uh, tend to sing as churches that are Jesus is my boyfriend songs that never mentions his name, but I could put my wife's name in there and it could mean the same thing. We make a false god of. God, or God is my buddy, he's my friend, we can make jokes together, he's walking with me, and he's talking with me, and telling dirty jokes with me, that kind of God we tend to make of God, and it's a false God. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, is not like that. Yes, he blesses. Yes, he prospers. Yes, he changes hearts. Yes, he shows love. Yes, he is a God of emotion. Man, if you don't have emotions when you encounter God, you're not encountering God. But he also brings curses, and he brings low, and he hardens hearts, and he shows his wrath. Yahweh is not a buddy, he's not. He is the God of all creation. And 1 Samuel 6 reveals that He is holy. And His holiness makes demands. God's holiness demands His glorification. God's holiness demands obedience to Him. And His holiness demands a guilt offering be made to Him. So, the question that we're going to try to answer today, which we'll read here in a second... Um, as we finish out chapter six, as I finish reading chapter six, the question that we're trying to answer is who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who can stand before such a holy God? So if I get passionate, I sound angry. I'm not angry today. I'm just like, wow, I love it. I've been so excited, which can be dangerous in preaching this, um, but just know, I feel like he's yelling at me. Heck no, man, I am just, because the holiness of God is awesome. And for us to be able to sit underneath the holiness of God we, as God's people. So if you're an unbeliever today, I mean, I'll, I'll be speaking to you later on, but this sermon is for us as God's people to know and understand if we are believers in Christ, if we are his people, this is what God demands from us. And then hear me all the way to the end, please. Because when we talk about God's wrath, we can like get into a depression if that's all we talk about. There's more than his wrath. It's there, but it's his love and his grace too. And we'll get there. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bible app, go ahead and pull those out. We're going to read the rest of chapter six. Um, and, uh, and I might stop every once in a while to explain you know just some details of why, this and why, that, but we're going to start in verse six. First Samuel chapter six, verse six, and then we're going to read all the way to chapter seven, verse two. "Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaohs harden their hearts? So remember, these are the priests and the diviners of the Philistines speaking to the Philistine lords. After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never become a yoke, and and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them. So if you know anything about cattle, um, in the most minor well, let's just say you take a calf away from its mother, both of them are going to want to come back together, right? So if you remove the calf, the the cow's going to wander around looking for this calf. But, and if it's never been yoked, so all of these things are brand new. It's never been yoked. You take their, their uh, calf away from them. If they go back to Israel, and he'll, the, the diviners will say this, and say, if they go back to Israel, then you'll know it is God. But if it's wandering around, it's doing contrary. The cow is doing contrary to what it is supposed to do and what it normally does. And so that's a sign from God that this is the right thing to do, okay? Does that make sense? Everything's new, putting a yoke on, it, never been yoked, well, what's a cow gonna do? It's gonna buck and jump and run and do everything that it needs to do to get away from that yoke. So, verse eight. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he, that is the Lord, who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by coincidence. Quick understanding, there are no coincidences with God. So we'll move on. Verse 10, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. The mice are because that's what carried the plague. There was a plague that went around that caused tumors. It's really disgusting, but that's what they did. And the cow, verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. So they, they wanted their calves But they did contrary as to what was natural for them. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which which were the golden figures and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the gold mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords. So they have, you know, just five of this and then a bunch of other mice. So there's a lot of cities, okay? Bo- both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they had set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall we go up shall he go up away from us so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-jearim saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord come down and take it up to you and the men of Kiriath-jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the on the hill and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So the first thing that that God's holiness demands is that there would be glorification of him. The advice of the pagan priests and diviners was to make these golden tumors and mice, send them with the ark back to Israel, and then interestingly enough, quote, give glory to the God of Israel. So worship him and praise him. To give him is is actually more than just praise, it's to give weighty importance to something or someone. Have you ever heard of a, a... they say that a lot of in, in like politics, like, oh, their, their speech has gravitas. It has weight. Well, God's gravitas is 50,000 times greater, infinitely greater than anything we could have imagined. So to give him glory is to give him that weighty importance, to acknowledge God's weighty importance. And the Philistines were used to giving glory to their God, their false God, Dagon. But the Lord proved him to be dead and weak, Nothing compared to him. Dagon didn't bring the plague. The Lord brought the plague. And so, their priests and diviners say, give him the glory. Worship him as glorious and weighty and in importance and majesty. And as the ultimate embodiment of holiness, there is none like the Lord. He is set apart. He is above all things. His majesty is to the ruin of all others. The Philistines understood that there was no God like Yahweh, and they were driven to find ways to get rid of him, which is sad when you read that. He proves he is living and he's alive, and that Dagon is nothing compared to God, but instead of running to him and worshiping him, they got rid of him. even sadly while they were glorifying him as they're walking away from Israel. So not only does he demand glorification of him, his holiness, God's holiness, demands obedience to him. The Philistines displayed the ark as a trophy and placed it in Dagon's temple, publicly displaying their belief that Dagon was above the Lord instead of handling it as he asks, as Yahweh asked them. And they paid the price for that. They paid the price with tumors, and they paid the price with death. So how can God take the Philistines, knowing that they had no clue on how to handle the ark, how can the Philistines actually know what God wants? It's not right. It's not fair. They're idol worshipers. They're not the people of God. How can God hold them to such a high standard of obedience? Well, God doesn't work by our standard. He works by His standard. And His standard is perfect holiness. Disobedience to His commands is not given a pass simply because someone doesn't know or isn't willing to find out what those commands are. Could the Philistines have figured it out? Absolutely. They could have gone into Israel, captured a priest, and asked him, what are we supposed to do with this? But they didn't. See, His holiness does not allow disobedience simply because of ignorance. And so the Philistines paid the price. Now the Israelites, they treat God as a genie. We saw this in the last couple of weeks. In the ark, they treat it as an idol, paying the price first by losing the ark in battle, and then now, in our chapter today, 70 men are killed. You see, there were strict commands in dealing with the items of the tabernacle. So we're talking about the men from Beth Shemesh, that first city The high priest and his son were to cover the items and no one was allowed and no one else was allowed to touch the items or see the items of the tabernacle. They are holy to the Lord. They are set apart. And so the priests and the high priest would go through this huge, massive, elaborate uh, cleansing of themselves so that they could go in when the tent of meeting moved. They would cover everything up and no one else was allowed to see them or to touch them. And no one was to look upon them lest they die. And the people of Beth Shemesh are the epitome of disobedience. First, they offer the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And this may seem innocent, especially considering holy cow, no pun intended, sorry. Holy cow, the ark has been gone for seven months and there it is. Yay! Like, that's a really joyous, Time right, but Leviticus one clearly says that only bow, bow, uh, sorry, bulls and not cows were to be used as burnt offerings. They disobeyed God's commands, and they knew about it. They couldn't even claim ignorance. This is a priestly city; they know better, and yet they disobeyed. Obeyed. Secondly, the burnt offering was to be performed only by the priest which they didn't. It was the Levites who did it. And finally, they placed the ark uh, next to a large rock, a predominant place for anybody to see. And remember what we talked about? No one's allowed to see the ark. The ark was to be hidden away, always there but never seen. And their disobedience costs 70 men their life. How can God hold them to such a high standard of obedience? Because God's holiness won't allow anything less. And then there's a breath of fresh air in the men of Kiriath-Jerim. After the residents of Beth Shemeth demand that the ark be taken away from them, interestingly, the same request that the Philistines make, the men of Kiriath-Jerim willingly take the ark back to their house, but instead of placing it In a predominant place, it goes to the house of a man named Abinadab. And instead of anyone just taking care of the ark, Eleazar is consecrated. That means he's made holy. He is cleansed. He is set apart to watch over and care for the ark. Now, in other words, or in the words of theologian Richard Phillips, This is what he says, Abinadab and his son apparently did everything they could to observe God's commands for the ark. Now, how do we know that? Because nobody was killed in Curia, Why would they go to such lengths? Because God's holiness demands obedience to his commands under the penalty of death. It's kind of, it's all flying in the face of God is my buddy, doesn't it? And finally, so God's holiness, God's holiness demands obedience. God's holiness demands his glorification. And finally, God's glo- uh, holiness demands a guilt offering to him. Again, going back to the Philistines, the Philistines. The Philistine priests recommended a guilt offering to be sent along. These golden tumors and golden mice, they were expensive and they were many. In other words, this offering was going to cost the Philistines a lot. But in their minds, any price was cheap compared to keeping the ark in their presence and in their land. And they wanted it gone, and so the guilt offering was offered willingly. Now, what is a guilt offering? Well, if we go uh, back to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, this is what God's command is to um, to the Levites, to the Israel, to the Israelites about what it means to give a guilt offering on a regular basis. and people are like, oh, it's the law. Well, listen carefully to the words that are being used here. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things in the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish, blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering and he shall be forgiven. Okay, so there's a lot of things in that, but simply a guilt offering is an item of high value that is given for an offense against God, a sin against God, a sin against the holiness of God. Remember, see, did you hear in there the holy things, the sins against the holy things? And the three words, other words that are used in there are compensation, restitution, and atonement. A sin was committed against the Lord by an individual or by the nation of Israel as a whole, and to make amends and reconcile their relationship with God for their sinful rebellion, a ram from the flock is to be offered. It's a very expensive item for anybody at that time. It was to be offered to God, to Yahweh. And obedience to this command also revealed their devotion to him and a recognition of, I need to be forgiven. I have made an offense to God and I need to give him an offering, a guilt offering, an offering for my guilt against a holy God. So bringing it back to 1 Samuel chapter 6, it is interesting to note that the Philistines offer a guilt offering, but the Israelites don't. Did you see that? Did you hear that? They don't offer a guilt offering. They both have sinned against the Lord, paying the price with life. But it is the idol worshipers who actually obey the command of God. Unwittingly, but they do it. Israel, though, offers no such offering. They do not acknowledge their disobedience of the Lord. They instead get rid of the ark and he says to get rid of this holy God. Who can stand? Not us. Who can stand before this holy God? Not us. But instead of offering a guilt offering, they send him away. Get him out of our presence. And this is the view That the nation of Israel holds for the next 20 years until they finally begin to lament after or seek after the Lord. They worship idols. And you can even read ahead in chapter 7 when Samuel calls them out. If you want to return to the Lord, get rid of your idols. They've been worshiping idols for 20 years after this incident. They ignore the ark. They ignore God's holiness. They ignore the demands that His old holiness requires of them. And they ask the right question. Who is able to stand before this old holy God? The holiness of God is not a small matter. It is of the utmost importance as God's people. So we can ignore because we don't have the ark, right? We don't have a, a cloud, a pillar of cloud, or a pillar of fire. We don't have any of this stuff that we read about in the Old Testament visually for us. And we say, well, we're just going to come to church and we're going to worship and it's going to make me feel good and I'm going to go home joyous until I go to work the next day and have to deal with all of the same stuff over and over again until I get back and then I get the goosebumps and it makes me feel good until Monday when I go back. to See this circle there? Who is able to stand before this holy God? To look at the holiness of God, to come together even in this moment right now as God's people worshiping Him through music, worshiping Him through fellowship, worshiping Him, worshiping him through hearing the Word of God, to belittle God's holiness, to ignore God's holiness, we do it to our own peril. And so what is God's holiness? If you want some illustrations Okay. Disclaimer. Kids, everybody look at me. Are you supposed to look at the sun? Why? You can say it. Why? It'll hurt your eyes. Okay. So this is an illustration. This is not a permission for you to go outside and look at the sun. Okay. If you look at the sun, you can only look for so long, right? Before your eyes start to hurt. And of course, if you look at it for really long or too long, you could hurt your eyes. You could go blind, right? The the brightness of the sun is so great, you cannot stare at it for very long before it does damage to you. Or I had a friend in in high school while well, I was young, and he was in high school, and we had this massive bonfire at a friend's house. And he was, he was cocky, right? He was arrogant. He thought he'd be so awesome. He took his shirt off, and he's warming himself up by this, it literally was like a 10-foot bonfire that we had at this, this farmer's house, and he's standing there, and he thought he was so cool, and everybody's like, you're going to get burned. He's like, nah, I'm fine. He stood too close, and he had third-degree burns on his back. Yeah, it was just, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to gross you out. But But this, you get too close to a fire, you get burned, right? And these are imperfect illustrations to say if The sun, which is a created thing, or a fire is a created thing, you dig it too close to it, it causes harm. Now imagine encountering a holy God who is perfect in everything and His radiance and His power are so great that the sun and a fire are nothing compared to His holiness. The holiness of God is far greater and power and weight than the sun or a campfire or anything else we can imagine. The prophet Isaiah had an encounter with God's holiness in Isaiah chapter 6. And this is this is a famous part. If you've been a part of church, you, you know this. When he realizes that he's in the presence of Yahweh, Isaiah cries out, woe is me. Like he's perfectly fine watching this vision and It's like, oh, yeah, and then he looks over and he realizes he's in Yahweh's presence. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That does not mean he swears a lot. That means he is sinful, utterly sinful, and in the presence of a perfect and holy God. He says, my eyes have seen for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is a prophet. The holiness of God is revealed to him. And his utter, complete and overwhelming sinfulness and disobedience to God waves over Isaiah. If this is how a prophet reacts to God's holiness, what chance do you and I have what chance do we have in isaiah's case an angel comes with a burning coal from the heavenly altar and places it on isaiah's lips now there are some churches who literally take a hot coal and they say well we're just following what I, unless it's from the altar of heaven itself and you're an angel you're not allowed to put a hot coal on your lips okay lots of disclaimers today kids stay away from coals what is the point of this He places it on Isaiah's lips and he says, the angel says this, well, Isaiah says, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. This is from the altar before the throne of God in heaven. This coal is. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Where have we heard that before? The guilt offering. This is, This is his guilt being taken away, but instead of offering a sacrifice, God in his power cleanses him, Isaiah, without a sacrifice, at that moment at least. As Richard, theologian Richard Phillips puts it again, he says, to stand in God's holy presence is to be cleansed from sin and freed from God's holy wrath. To stand in God's holy presence is to be cleansed from sin and freed from God's holy wrath for our sin. And so the question again is, who can stand in the presence of a holy God? Because it's great for Isaiah. He got cleansed with a coal, right? But what hope do you and I have Our sin is too great. Our rebellion against God is too deep. How is it possible for you and for me to be cleansed and freed so we can stand in the presence of God for all eternity, forever? It's not possible. On our own. (laughs) You were waiting for it, weren't you? It's not possible. There is nothing you and I can do to cleanse us enough? Even in the Old Testament, they would offer a bowl, and they had to offer it over and over and over and over again, because it was never enough to cleanse the people of God for all time and all sin. So how is it possible for us to be cleansed and freed so that we can stand in the presence of it? It's not. On our own. We can't we can't. Our sin. Before the holiness of God is an infinite sin. We like to minimize our sin, right? Like, well, I mean, I lied, but it was for a good cause. What does that make you? You can say it. A liar. And what does God say about lying? Thou shalt not lie. You've just sinned. That one sin, which we look at as little is an infinite sin, Paul says you have, if you, if you lie once, you have, been, you have broken the entire law. You've broken the entire law. One little sin, it infects everything. And there is never enough sacrifice for us that we can make in order to cover up that infinite sin. And I think that's what we miss as churches. We think it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. When we sin against a holy God, It's a huge deal. Our sin is so great that no sacrifice of a bull or money or time would be a sufficient guilt offering. It would never be enough. We could put, put it this way. If I were to take literally everything that's ever been created in all of the universe, including myself and including my life, and it was sacrificed on an altar as a guilt offering to God, it would not even be a fraction of what was needed in order to cleanse me of my sin. That's how infinite our guilt is before the holiness of God. Our sinful rebellion against Him is infinite and so the sacrifice needs to be infinite the guilt offering must be equally infinite god understood our dilemma he understood that sacrifices of bulls would never be sufficient and so he sent the sufficient sacrifice he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to willingly come to earth to be the guilt offering for us that we could never pay on our own. This is not my idea. I'm not making this out of thin air. Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. These are the words of Paul. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the law was given and now the righteousness of God has actually been manifested, has been made known in before or after apart from the law, which is in Jesus Christ. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is Christ, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what is the righteousness of God? It's given by Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, by belief in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. None of us meet the expectations of God's glory and His holiness. We can't. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right in the eyes of God by his grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth, in my favorite word, as a propitiation. I love that word. If your Bible doesn't say it, shame on you. Just my personal feelings, okay? Propitiation by his blood. We'll talk about that in a second. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He didn't kill people necessarily because he showed grace until his son came. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus Christ was put forth as a propitiation. His shed blood was offered to the Lord as a guilt offering. Propitiation means to turn away the wrath of God. So Christ's shed blood on the cross was offered to the Lord as a guilt offering to turn God's wrath for our rebellion away from us and onto Christ. Christ's sacrifice redeems us, atones for our sins, buys us back to be in the presence of God, pays the penalty of our infinite death. And he justifies us. He makes us acceptable to God. His blood is our guilt offering. He is our guilt offering. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. This is Christ himself. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus Christ gave his life as a ransom, as a payment for our sins. Or Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, that is Christ, a high priest Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's a really fancy way of saying he was perfect in every way possible. He has no need like those high priests, those earthly high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus, the great high priest, is holy, innocent, unstained, and sinless. He became the infinite sacrifice for our infinite sins against a holy God. So who is able to stand before this holy God? Hebrews 7.25, so right before those two verses that I just read, Puts it plainly. Consequently, Christ is able to save to the uttermost completely. Uttermost, forever, all, everything. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's infinite sacrifice is sufficient to forgive and atone for the sins of everyone, but it is a sacrifice only given to those who draw near to God through faith in Christ. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient, but it's only given if you believe Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is belief in Christ alone, faith that the sacrifice of his blood upon the cross turns away all the wrath of God against us. He restores our relationship with God and he justifies and he saves us. Who is able to stand before this holy God if you believe you? You don't need a coal from the heavenly altar to touch your lips. You don't need a sacrifice a bowl. You don't need to offer a guilt offering because Christ already did it. And if you believe that to be true, he will save you. Now, as Christians, we sit back and we go, okay, I absolutely, praise God. How does that apply to me? Well, his holiness demands obedience, his holiness demands a guilt offering, his holiness demands sacrifice. His holiness demands that we glorify Him. The Guilt offering has already been offered. And guess what? That makes it easier and makes us capable of actually giving Him the glory He deserves and actually giving Him the praise and the honor. And so you say, well, what am I supposed to do? Worship God, praise Him. Strive to obey Him. When you hear a command of Christ, you hear a command of God in this and you want to understand it and live it out. It's not, it's not legalism because you're already saved. The guilt offering has already been given. There's nothing you need to give. Now, there are consequences to being a believer. First of all, we're made little and He's made great. We give of our own life. If it is for me to die for the sake of Christ and that is his will, then I need to be willing to give that up. If through his commands, he demands that I would devote my life completely to him, that means you're a Christian, everybody, right? That is our call and the command of God. Then strive to live it out, to obey those commands. And when we fail, to realize that we have a high priest, we have the guilt offering he's already been given to us. He's already died for that disobedience. And that doesn't give us free reign to just sin, like, woo, yeah, we got grace, right? Woo, it's the guilt offering, this is awesome. Like, No, no. we want to please our God and worship Him and give Him glory and obey Him because He is worthy of it and we know it. Now, if you're an unbeliever, and you hear this. You say, that's all we got to do. We just got to believe and confess with our mouth. What? Yeah, yeah. But you, then once that happened, he saves you. Now you got to give your life to him. And he takes it. He takes, your life no longer belongs to you. But that's what, 80 years? Maybe? And then you get to spend all of eternity. And in those 80 years, you experience joy, incomprehensible Should he take everything that is mine and yet all I am left with is my faith in Christ? What joy is there in that? There's incredible joy because it's God's people and I hope all of us believe this, that as his people, through faith in Jesus Christ, through belief in Jesus Christ, we are made holy so that we can stand before the Holy God. When we are doing communion here in a minute, this is a remembrance service. He says, do this in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? He is the guilt offering. He is the sacrifice. The fact that we can worship and stand in the presence of a holy God, Christ did that for us upon the cross. And so we need to remember because what happens for us as humanity is we become all about us. We worship us or we create a God out of our image or we worship idols and Christ is reminding us, no, you need to remember what I did because you are who you are because of me and what I did to you and for you. Remember that and give me glory. And give the Lord glory and praise Him. So when we are doing communion, you don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. You just have to be a believer. It's called open communion. So, So we don't have communion police. We're not walking around saying, show me your membership card. We don't do that, okay? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you believe what I said, now you may not be living it out perfectly, but you believe what I said, you are welcome to join us at this table. But remember, if you take this lightly, You are belittling the holiness of God and the sacrifice of God of himself on the cross, and that is a dangerous place to put yourself. We take this seriously, but it's also an extremely joyous occasion. We are made holy because of Christ, and this does nothing for us. Christ already did it. This is just a remembrance service. This is just a party, in a sense, of worshiping God and celebrating what he did for us and remembering that this is about him. So when Aaron uh, when starts playing, you can go ahead and start making a line and then grab uh, the juice or the wine, depending if you're an adult or not, to grab a piece of bread, come back, sit at your chair, and then together as a family, as a church family, as the people of God, we will take communion together as one body. Does that all make sense? Okay, so when you are ready, go ahead and make the line, go back to your seat, and then we'll